is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Wednesday, May 10th, readers gathered at the East Side Freedom Library to read their pieces from St. Paul Almanac's Volume 11, On a Collected Path. East Side Freedom Library. Give him a hand. This is, um, <laughs> this is Peter. He's the director here, and you've had it, what, about a year now? Three years. Three years? Almost oh, three my years. gosh. Okay, well, Peter is going to say a few words, so I'll let okay. you. Thank you. So uh, welcome everyone. Um, we've done a couple of things with the Almanac and we're really delighted to have you here and uh, look forward to hearing from the folks that are reading tonight. Uh, so some logistics, the bathrooms are downstairs um, and uh, I encourage you, whether you need to use the bathrooms or not, to go down the stairs and see the mural that uh, we were able to commission with a grant from the Night Arts Challenge uh, painted by Jerry Yang, who's a local Hmong artist, telling stories of the East Side. Um, we had a lot of focus groups that met with him. And, um, so, uh, hi, John. And uh, let me just explain a little bit. Um, this was a public library. Uh, ben, right? Uh, ben came in and said, that you, you, you used to tutor kids here? Um, this building is... Uh, 100 years old, or will be 100 in September, uh, and was built as one of three Carnegie libraries uh, in St. Paul, uh, all three of which are turning 100 this year. And the St. Paul Public Library System is having some celebration of that. And we're also having some celebrations here about this building. Um, about five years ago, the city council, one of the peculiarities of St. Paul is the the city council is the library board. In Minneapolis, there's a separate library board. And the city council decided that uh, they didn't want to use this building any longer as a library. Um, and we won't get into the rationale for all of that. Uh, and they built a new building. And Ben and I kind of commiserated. My wife says that you could mistake the new building for a Best Buy. Um, and that's at the corner of Payne in Maryland. And it's also one of these newfangled libraries that, that don't have many books. Uh, it's another interesting feature of the new library. And so uh, we believe in books, uh, and, and we particularly believe in telling the stories of working people, people of color, immigrants, women, uh, people who have been pushed to the margins uh, of society and and one of the ways people get marginalized is their stories don't get told fairly or they don't get asked to tell their own stories. Uh, this is a neighborhood on the east side that has, uh, since the Dakota people were driven out in the early 19th century, uh, one wave of immigrants after another has, has lived here, uh, beginning with Swedes and Norwegians and Italians and 
Irish and Germans. And now it's a neighborhood largely of Hmong, Karen, Somali, um, Salvadoran, Mexican, um, Bhutanese. Um, it's a great neighborhood. Um, but, and we live in the neighborhood and um, wanted to, our sense was that this was a neighborhood where it was moving in the direction of uh, the white people who remained in the neighborhood feeling marginalized and bitter about particularly economic change, that 14,000 unionized blue collar jobs left this neighborhood and younger white people moved away. Um, the value of housing dropped, new immigrants began to move in. Largely the same set of economic forces, what us academics call neoliberalism, uh, took the jobs out of here and also disrupted people's lives in Central America, East Africa, and Southeast Asia. And so they began to move in, and we were aware that, that racism and hostility and fear was growing. And um, my partner Beth and I, being academics, uh, thought that education uh, and culture, because she's a theater person, uh, would be a way to try to address that alienation uh, that we were seeing in the community. And so we wanted to create an institution that would build bridges uh, between people in different cultures, especially by encouraging them to come and tell their stories. And um, we're now at almost 18,000 books uh, focused in those topics that are really, I think, a great collection of books. We have an electronic catalog. The books have been um, donated by individuals. We've shelved the books by the individuals who donated them. So you can visit High Berman's books or Naomi Sheeman's books or Paula Rabinowitz's books or Fred Ho's books or Sal Salerno's books or my books um, in different parts of the library. And you can search it, uh, search, search the holdings electronically. All of that's been done by volunteers. Um, one of my favorite volunteers is now sitting in the front row, John Seeloff. Uh, yes! And John has not only uh, been a primary cataloger of the books, but um, he's also built all the shelving that is above the fake brass um, because uh, we very quickly were exceeding the capacity of the place uh, for books. And, and John incredibly generously and with great skill and talent uh, crafted these shelves for us. So if you have a carpentry job uh, at home, here he is. Um, if you have a cataloging job in your library, here, here he is. Um, and, uh, and then we're doing a lot of programming, and, and you are evidence of, of some of the programming. We have a guest book uh, by the front door. I urge you to uh, to give us your name and email in the guest book so that we can let you know about uh, upcoming events and activities here at the library. Um, and I want to say in, in particular, because this is obviously a literary audience tonight, that um, next Wednesday night, uh, Mai Durvang, who is a young poet based in Fresno, who's just published her first collection called Afterland, published by Gray Wolf, uh, she will be reading here next Wednesday night, and the following week on the Thursday night, the 28th, I think, uh, my name Mua will be here with, with her new book, The Bride Price, uh, part of a series that we're doing with women writers, including Marcy Rendon and 
Nora Murphy and Carolyn Holbrook and, uh, and my name. So um, get on our email list. We won't pester you. We try to send only one a month uh, with a calendar for the month to come. There's also a, a website that, that has our calendar on it. So um, as the evening winds down, if you have questions, anything you want to know, one thing to say is the books don't circulate. Uh, you have to read the books here, um, which is a nice thing. And we have this delicious collection of rocking chairs that you can sit in while you read and make new friends. Um, so I hope that you'll come back. And I appreciate Kimberly for creating the St. Paul Almanac. And, uh, and keeping it alive, and um, and I'm I'm certainly finding what it takes to keep a nonprofit venture uh, going, and uh, and I appreciate all of you being here, and Linda, uh, who is a relative of John's, I've learned, a rental <laughs> relative of Brenda's. All right, and so Linda is going to uh, run the event tonight, and so all yours. Thank you, Peter. That's awesome. First of all, I want to introduce myself. Um, I'm Linda White, and I have previously been a member of Craft Walnut. Some of you might be familiar with that series. And I'm filling in for Dave today, so I'm happy to do that. I also have Mary Schmidt over there selling books, and she's um, my equipment manager <laughs> tonight. So um, I'm a brand-new board member of the St. Paul Almanac. I'm really excited about that, and I've been a supporter of the Almanac for years. Uh, I would urge all of you to take a look at the volume if you haven't already. Um, it's just beautiful. Uh, we're ex super excited about it. I, I've been twice publishing it before, and uh, last year I was a community editor. And um, I, it's, I also encourage all of you to submit work to the Almanac, to the next edition. Right now they are taking submissions for the next edition. And if you have any luck at all, it'll be just as beautiful as this one. The submission period is open for the 2018 Almanac. You just go to the St. Paul Almanac website, and it's all spelled out, stpaulalmanac.org. So um, this year's edition is a new format, as I said, and our readers today are all included in the Almanac. Um, thanks to Peter again for hosting us tonight. Uh, and um, there are postcards over on the table over there as well that have the listing of the rest of the series if you're interested in attending more readings. And we have a couple people who are um, kind of on track to attend all of them, right, Steve? That's, that's <laughs> we have at least track. Deb and Steve, right? <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, and I'm going to be reading the bios of each of the readers as they come up. So um, without further ado, I am the first reader. I don't know how that's supposed to work exactly, but I'm going to read my own bio. So <laughs> I should have planned this a little differently, but uh, I am a reader, writer, editor, reviewer, promoter, and instructor. My writing has appeared in the St. Paul Almanac, Writer's Block, Min Reads, and Book Riot. In 2013, I was a finalist in the Beyond the Pure Fellowship for Writers at Intermedia Arts, and I run a business called Bookmania and a website for writers called The Publishing Bones. And um, if you're on Twitter, go ahead and find me there. At Linda Wonder is my Twitter handle. So I'm there every day. And I'm going to read a piece that's on page 74. If you care to follow along, you certainly can. But um, I will confess I have edited it since. <laughs> <laughs> David told me I could. All right, I'm going to... This is called Adventures in Midway Center. 
When I was a kid growing up in the Midway area of St. Paul, there was a strip center, one of the early shopping centers, called, of all things, Midway Center. It was anchored on one end by C.G. Murphy, a precursor to Target, with items in deep tables all along the front of the store. On the opposite side of the strip center was a monstrous addition of Montgomery Ward, four stories high. You could find anything there. We didn't shop at each or either of these much, but my mother did buy a lot of her clothes at a store in the middle of the L-shaped strip center called Learners. Apparently, Learners was the bastion of all things high fashion for the trendy lady of the 1970s. My mom bought a full-length blue faux fur coat there once. Yes, blue fur. <laughs> it had a short nap on the body of the coat in a lighter blue, and then darker blue trim in a plush, long faux fur. The sleeves were almost bell sleeves in the fashion of the day, with great big cuffs in long blue fur. And the lapels were all the rage, too. Wide, deep, long and blue, furry lapels. It was the height of cool. She used to take me to learners with her when she did her shopping. And really, is there anything more boring than watching someone else shop? <laughs> Once I climbed into the middle of one of those circular clothes racks, I was about six or seven, and I fell asleep. Uh, they turned the store upside down for me until I woke up and crawled out. I suppose I gave my mom quite a scare. It's true, my mom was very cool. She wore crocheted skirts and vests that she made herself and long dangly earrings that were hidden in her long dark hair. She died shortly after I fell asleep in that clothes rack and I never did go into learners again, but I remember it so well. And just outside learners was a tiny little house surrounded by a chain link fence. The house was used in the winter for Santa. I don't remember ever going there to actually see Santa, but I do recall spending a lot of time outside that fence looking at the reindeer that inhabited that yard during Decembers. I don't know if they were real reindeer or just regular deer. The last time I saw them, I was probably eight. But they sure did open up all kinds of flights of fancy in my little mind. Every year, I begged to go and see the reindeer. My brother remembers that we did climb on Santa's lap one year, but I have no recollection of that. I have continued to drive by Midway Center throughout my life, watching the changes on University Avenue. The old Chevy dealership where my dad bought his first new car, a green Impala, gone now, moved out to the suburbs. The old drugstore right on the inside angle of the L at Midway Center that had a lunch counter, just like in the movies. And if you walked out the back door of the drugstore and across the alley, you were in the giant Montgomery Ward. Next door was the beauty salon where my first stepmom cut off all my hair. And there was a bowling alley too, underground, where my brother and I would hang out, pretending we were playing the pinball games because we didn't have any money. What I wouldn't give now to have my mother bore me with her shopping. These things we don't treasure until we're older. Talk now is there's going to be a big soccer stadium put on that site, and they're gonna get rid of the little Midway Center strip mall completely. I will always remember the little house with the reindeer and that long blue fur coat from Learners. It seems like things always have to change. But at least we have these hazy things called memories that we can call on from time to time.
Thank you. Sarah Culper? Where's Sarah? Okay. Sarah Culper writes poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Her poem, Moonwalker, is engraved on a sculpture located at St. Cloud State University. Baseball Bits Number no. 2 was published in A View from the Loft in 2001. Searching for Answers was selected for Hazelden's Conference on Arts and Healing. Her first book is Potholes, a collection of poems, quotes, and cameos. And her website is www.the-liberal-prude.com. I'm not sure if I said that right. Please welcome Sarah Culper. Thank you, Linda. And thank you again, Kimberly, and the familiar faces I see from those who work so steadily and so hard on keeping the St. Paul Almanac alive. Um, I thought about this, and one of the things that, uh, that I think is so special about it is that you can go to the library and you can check out a book about the history, maybe written by one person, but what makes the St. Paul Almanac so rich and so wonderful is you're getting the history of the experience of the people who live here. That is invaluable, and I'm delighted every time I read a piece from it. And thank you to Eastside Freedom Library. I've been here a couple of times for some other events. This is a wonderful place. Thank you also for keeping this going. So my story is called The Escolar Incident. One of the things I love about St. Paul is the availability of ethnic foods. Several years ago, I discovered the Dragon Star supermarket just blocks from my house. One day, as I had done so in the past, I decided to try something new. I perused the fruit section and selected a large porcupine-type looking melon. I gathered my groceries and proceeded to the checkout line. A little woman next to me said, you like? I don't know, I said. I just thought I'd try it. Oh, she said, smell very bad, taste very good, very expensive. Expensive? I said. I in expensive? I inquired, turning to the cashier. Pardon me. How expensive can a melon be? I thought. The cashier said, $32. $32? I said incredulously. I thought it was $3.99. $32. $3.99 a pound. It weighs eight pounds, she replied. <laughs> I paused, somewhat embarrassed, thinking, expensive and it smells bad? <laughs> I changed my mind, I said. I misunderstood the sign. My culinary experimentation with new and unusual fruit would be postponed. On another occasion, I explored the fish section. There, I encountered countless numbers of sea creatures, some of which looked more delectable than others. I selected two eight-ounce fillets of fish called escolar. The texture seemed, the texture resembled walleye, so I thought it could be cooked similarly. How difficult could it be? Later that evening, I found a recipe online and prepared it accordingly, along with rice and fresh asparagus. I was excited to cook something special for my sweetheart and to demonstrate my meager cooking abilities. I had a history of many failed attempts in the kitchen, including one we aptly named Gruel. <laughs> Bill was by far a superior cook. Dinner was perfect. 
We both agreed the Escalar fillets were delicious. We would have them again. After we cleaned the kitchen, Bill went to his man cave to work on his computer. I decided to check my email and do a little Facebook time. I couldn't stop thinking about that fish. I wanted to know more about it, what it looked like, where it lived. I couldn't bear the thought it might resemble a lanternfish. I just couldn't wrap my head around eating something ugly. I once asked a barista to describe a particular politician as an animal. He didn't hesitate. A lanternfish, he replied. <laughs> I had to look it up. Now that is an ugly fish. I googled Escalar and quickly found a wealth of information. Considered a delicacy, it resembled a mackerel. Not an ugly fish at all. I was relieved. Low and mercury also made it desirable. The taste was described as buttery and succulent. Indeed, it was. I read further only to discover the recommended serving size was two to six ounces. Weird, I thought. We had each consumed an eight ounce, eight ounce filet. I read on. Eating more than six ounces of it could cause diarrhea. <laughs> diarrhea? Not good. I read further. Not just diarrhea, but exploding orange diarrhea, which could occur any time within 30 minutes to 36 hours. Uh-oh, I thought. I better tell Bill. I sheepishly descended the basement stairs to the man cave. Bill was engrossed in his work at the computer. I told him I needed to show him something. Can't it wait? I'm busy. I swallowed and said, uh, Bill, I think you're going to want to see this. Though somewhat irritated with my interruption, he agreed to pull up Escalar. He started to read. What's the big deal? Just keep reading, I said. While I was gravely concerned about the intestinal distress we might come to experience, I was trying not to laugh hysterically. <laughs> I had the next day off. <laughs> Unfortunately, Bill did not. He pushed, his, pushed back his chair abruptly, staring at me with something close to despair in his eyes and said, did you know about this? No, I replied emphatically. He said, what am I supposed to do? I have to work tomorrow. What am I supposed to do? Tell my clients, excuse me, but I need to run to the bathroom. And what if I don't make it? <laughs> I'm a visual person. I didn't have an answer for that. Tears formed in my eyes while I was choking on my laughter. Bill wasn't amused. I apologized again. A cloud of angst filled the room with silence. Bill turned back to the computer while I shamefully crawled up the stairs. I suppose I could end the story here, but that would leave you wondering. <laughs> Although we experienced a bit of intestinal disruption, there were no explosions. I still love culinary adventures and continue to frequent my favorite multi-ethnic supermarket in this richly diverse community we call St. Paul. Mom. Our next reader is Adelinda Estrada. She drives a motorcycle, as old as she is, and she has a dog named Batman and a daughter that has more energy than all three put together. She works as a school-based therapist and writes to remind herself that the healing lies in the stories we hold. Welcome, Adelinda. 
you guys are going to be patient with me if, if you may, because I have a really sore throat, courtesy of my daughter's preschool sharing. <laughs> sure. Um, so um, uh, this story that I'm going to read happened a few years ago. Um, I met the man um, who's the subject of the story in a St. Paul building, legal building downtown. Um, I can't give too many details, but um, I do recall that this man is someone that you would walk um, pass by on the street and probably ignore or have some negative judgments about, probably someone that you would assume would be homeless or something. So it really gets me wondering all the stories that people walk around with and we just kind of, you know, don't even think twice sometimes, especially in their morning commutes. <clears throat> I met a man once. Uh, the details and circumstances under which I met him are vague. It is a story that I cannot forget. He was from a country he could not go back to and had come to America in hopes that he could start anew and leave the past behind. But the past had followed him. Despite moving um, several times around the United States, he just could not shake it away. He fell into a hole of drug addiction and had a very difficult time getting out. He said he needed to erase the memories, one memory in particular, which he called the day my life ended. He had just graduated from high school, he recalled, and was set for a summer vacation. His family was a good family. He made sure to tell me this. He described his father as a military man with good values, and he wanted to follow in his footsteps. His mother was a nurturing woman, and his siblings were both loving and playful. They were good people, he said. Nothing messed up about them, he reiterated. Nothing that would have predicted the direction his life had headed. I think that's what he meant. His hazel eyes were far past the, looked, went far past the room's walls as he talked about the small plantation his family owned. He called it his good, normal life. His trajectory was set for success. Nothing could foresee the night that ended his life, as he described it. He went to a party that evening with his sweetheart and his friends. He felt young, hopeful, in love, and thought nothing of it. He sighed deeply at this point and laughed, as if he had told a joke only the universe found funny. That night, he stopped and swallowed. He came home to the sound of his mother screaming. He ran inside the house because I remember the story so well. Um, and found a man trying to assault her. And I had to leave some details out, but it was very powerful. As he recounted a horrific scene, he looked at me and almost passed me as if trying to make some sense of what happened. He grabbed the object closest to the door, a large machete for cutting branches and headed towards the man. All he wanted to do was stop the attack. That's all he wanted to do. He ended up cutting the man's arms off. He said he got lost in his rage, and the actions he took certainly stopped the attack, though they would haunt everyone involved forever. He ran to pick up his weeping mother. They called the police and paramedics, though surprisingly, the attacker survived. He himself ended up getting five years in prison for his actions. I died that day, he said. He told me about the circumstances of his trial, about how the five years eventually turned to 10 in a third world prison, 
after getting time added on to his sentence. I was young and handsome, he admitted. Some men had been in there for over 40 years. I suppose the imagination was um, all he could give me. He said those 10 years beat him deader than he already was. He shrugged his shoulders and smiled forcibly, maybe attempting to ease my discomfort or because all he could do was accept his fate, even if he could not make any sense of it. As he told his story, I saw tears well up and run down the crevices of his many wrinkles. He pinched the corners of his eyes with broad and beaten hands. There was a rough kindness to him as he cried silently. It was evident that this man held hate and hope, unlike most people I had ever met. Hate, the purposeful cause and reaction to most suffering, and hope because it is irrational, infinite, and sometimes the only glue that keeps us together in one piece. He held them both. We somehow finished this heavy conversation with small talk about the adopted children he had rescued from the streets and raised as his own. He asked me about my daughter and told me to love every moment, good and bad, that she would give me. They're all we got for our future, he said. This was not how I expected to part from this interaction. And yet, he bid me a good day and walked away. When I stepped outside, the world had a different color, a shade of dark, um, a shade of light green and brown like his eyes. My heart felt stopped, as if at a standstill between sadness, anger, and gratitude. His story had impacted me, and I could not figure out why. But I remember that as he spoke, I felt indescribably connected to him. He was my brother, my father, maybe even me if my cards had been dealt differently. He was everyone trying to survive and not lose humanity at the same time. And I felt my heart pounding again, one beat for hate and one beat for hope. Right, and our next reader is Mary Virginia Winstead. Where'd she go? Sorry. All right. Mary is a Twin Cities-based writer. She earned her BA in English from St. Catherine University and her MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Minnesota. Her work has appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers. Her memoir, Back to Mississippi, a personal journal through the events that changed America in 1964, won the 2003 Minnesota Book Award for nonfiction. She lives in Apple Valley. Welcome, Mary. Well, thank you all for being here. And it's, can you hear me okay? It's wonderful to be in this beautiful space. I've never been here before, and it's absolutely welcoming and wonderful. So thank you for hosting it. I had a Carnegie Library in my neighborhood growing up, and it was my favorite place. I would ride my bike there with my sister. It was near Lake Harriet. And spent, I just can't even tell you how many happy hours I spent in that library. So this is a treat. The piece I'm going to read today, I've written about this time in my life a lot. Um, and it was in the late 80s, early 90s, I'd just gone through a really difficult and contentious divorce. And I was rebuilding my life as a single mom with three kids and going to St. Kate's full time. And flat broke. But one of the ways, the most, probably the most important way that I got through that time was that all of a sudden I found myself surrounded by communities of women, friends, the sisters at St. Kate's, and this group of women. And the name of my essay is The Nice Grandmas. 
It was an older building on Grand and Saratoga. Three levels of charming studio apartments full of original woodwork. The landlady showed me an L-shaped corner unit with a Murphy bed in the living room, a built-in china cabinet in the dining area, a large dressing room, and a bathroom with a clawfoot tub. The rent was $250 a month within my student budget. There were storage lockers, a laundry, and a security door. It was just right for a single person. And in April of 1985, I was newly single. Everything about it was perfect, except I had three children under the age of eight. It's not that the landlady told me the children weren't allowed. After all, the apartments were too small for kids. But I couldn't afford more, and I certainly wasn't going to ask. Besides, my children would only be there on days when I didn't have classes. The rest of the time, they were with their dad and his new wife in the suburbs. Even if I had been able to afford more, I didn't want to rattle around in an apartment that was large enough to remind me how alone I was when they were gone. With my sofa, the double Murphy bed, and a cot to sleep on, we'd make this work. So I took the apartment, saying nothing about my three kids. The building was filled with little old ladies, one per studio. Gert lived one floor down, Margie lived upstairs, and Audrey's apartment was next door to Gert's. At first, when the kids came to visit on weekends and a couple of overnights during the week, I urged them to be quiet, though it was difficult for three little kids to thump and bump their way up two flights of squeaky stairs, wrestle like bear cubs, and chase each other up and down the hall without making any noise. <laughs> Betty's, apart Betty's apartment was just across the hall. She and I would chat at the mailboxes in the entry, and sometimes I'd help her with her groceries and laundry when we met on the stairs. She had worked as a, as a nurse, had never been married, and her only family was a niece in Iowa. Before long, the noise of the kids brought her to her front door with a box of vanilla wafers. Soon she had crayons and coloring books on her coffee table. And before long, the kids were spending the afternoon in her apartment, sucking on banana popsicles and watching cartoons. <laughs> now at the mailbox, she was asking me when our kids were coming to visit and they would knock on Betty's door the minute they dropped their overnight bags on the floor. Then she offered to look after them while I went to class. With their lunches in the refrigerator, the kids went back and forth between Betty's apartment and mine through our open front doors. On warm summer evenings, Betty and her friends, wearing snap front house coats and white tennis shoes, took their aluminum folding lawn chairs outside and sat on the lawn in front of the building in a semicircle, talking, eating popcorn, and drinking iced tea. The kids would play under the enormous pine tree in the yard and take handfuls of popcorn that they shoved into their mouths and washed down with cherry Kool-Aid. Candy dishes began to appear on each of our neighbor's coffee tables, and as soon as the kids burst through the security door, they worked the building as if it was Halloween. <laughs> now they were telling one, everyone, about the nice grandmas. But Betty was the grandma we bonded with. Crayons of superheroes were stuck to her Betty's refrigerator. We ran her errands, picked up milk and bread at the grocery store on the corner of Grand and Fairview, dusted her living room, and lugged baskets of her clean laundry up from the basement. At Christmas, we baked her cookies and gave her a white-knitted shawl, which she wore whenever the kids came to visit. She became their third grandma, and they became her grandkids. 
We stayed for two years until I graduated from St. Kate's, got a job, and found an apartment across the river in Minneapolis with enough bedrooms for all of us. For a while, we stopped by on warm summer evenings to see the nice grandmas and visit with Betty. But she got sick and frail and unable to live on her own, and one day she moved to a home in Iowa to live near her only niece. We never saw her again. After 30 years, we still talk about Betty and the nice grandmas, but mostly about how a single mom with three children found an extended family in a Grand Avenue apartment building where we weren't supposed to belong in the first place. Thank you. And our next uh, reader here tonight is Peg Gilfoyle. <laughs> hey, Peg, come on. <laughs> so um, she's the author of several books, including Offstage Voices, Life in Twin Cities Theater. Her company, Peg Projects, produces history books for private clients. The first office she ever worked in was in a turret in Landmark Center, then called the Old Federal Courthouse. She lives in downtown St. Paul. Welcome, Peg. My piece is on uh, page 108. Am I too tall for this, Mike? Do you want, want to push it up a little? Is that better? Closer. The piece is on page 108. It's called Uncle Texas Wedding, St. Paul's Story. My elderly aunt and I disgraced ourselves in the newspaper archives up at the History Center this year, laughing and sputtering and leaning on the microfilm reader amid disapproving looks from our fellows. We were working on family history, usually a sedate kind of inquiry, but we could hardly control our mirth, really it was awful, when this old story rolled into view from the St. Paul Dispatch of June 19, 1919, confirming a treasured family tale. Headline, Horseman dashes into hotel, seizes bridegroom. A horseman last night spurred his steed through the door and into the lobby of the Foley Hotel, 7th and Jackson Streets, while a reception in honor of Mr. and Mrs. John William Condon, married at the St. Paul Cathedral yesterday morning, was in progress. The horseman headed his mount directly towards the bride. Her husband quickly stepped between them to shield her from the invader. Not to be outwitted, the lone rider caught Condon in his grasp, swung his horse about, and rider and victim disappeared through the door. <laughs> Men in the lobby rushed to prevent the abduction, but were forced to retreat by a volley of shots from more than 50 revolvers grimly grasped by an equal number of horsemen waiting outside. While the intruders held the would-be rescuers at a distance, Condon, despite his vehement protests, was tied securely to a hay rack. The vehicle, with its cortege of shooting, howling horsemen, started up the street, a source of wonder to pedestrians. It does not matter what old pictures look like. Our ancestors are not stiffly posed, sepia-toned, collared and bustled cardboard cutouts. Whether respectable or rascals, famous or unknown, downtrodden or doing the trotting, they were demonstrably, undeniably alive. <laughs> Nearly 100 years ago, my great uncle, John William Condon, called Tex, was married for the first of several times here in St. Paul, to a society girl who had just graduated from what was then called Visitation Convent and whose father owned the downtown Foley Hotel. 
uh, but Tex was a cattleman working at the South St. Paul Stockyards, one of four sons in a family of Texas stockmen. On the day before Uncle Tex's wedding, the dispatch described plans for a rather decorous and conventional cathedral wedding, white peonies on the altar, bridal march from Lohengrin. The day after the wedding, the paper carried the above front page story, fevered in tone above the fold about the shenanigans at the reception. What happened? It was Hookham Cow. South St. Paul and its stockyards had, in 1919, a booster club formed primarily from the stockyard cattlemen and cowboys. 500 members strong. It had a marching unit, a queen, a singing quartet, and quite a reputation. At their first appearance at the St. Paul Winter Carnival, the newspaper said, quote, the Hook'em Cow Cavaliers terrified lady visitors by impromptu ring around the rosy in the streets. <coughs> Tex, a large and boisterous band, was their drum major. It was the Hook'em Cow boys who rode their horses into St. Paul, right up Concord Street, to the hotel, and stole Great Uncle Tex from the wedding reception, grimly grasping their revolvers. After the protesting groom was carried away, the dispatch went on. There was a, quote, careening ride around town in the buckboard. When the new father-in-law bravely offered himself as hostage, the boys took that worthy gentleman to the police station, where he was locked in a cell and eventually had to buy the rogues off with a box of cigars. You just have to wonder what the new in-laws were thinking. <laughs> Tex went on to a long and roistering career as a cattleman and auctioneer all over the West, flying from stock show to stock show in his own plane, on the side of which was painted Tex Condon, the big bull shipper. <laughs> he had at least two more wives, we do not know what happened to the former Miss Foley. When I drive up Concord Street now, I sometimes think I glimpse the Hook'em Cowboys on a June afternoon, trotting up toward the city, hay rack rattling and at the ready, all set to do mischief at the big society wedding. Family research comes in traces. The rest you are perfectly free to imagine. The paper says that after their eventful reception, the young couple left for the east on their honeymoon. I like to think of them settling into their seats on the train, looking out the window at a 1919 St. Paul disappearing behind them. And I like to imagine the new Mrs. Condon, so young, gazing up at her big husband, relieved that there were, as far as she knew, no hook'em cowboys aboard the train. <laughs> Thank you. All right, our next reader has the shortest bio of anyone. <laughs> and. Uh, he was, I, I got to see him read at Subtext a couple weeks ago when I hosted there. So, uh, well, without further ado, Jens Vanga, no, Jens Vanga, okay, has lived variously on both sides of the river for over 30 years. When not practicing architecture, he collects moments in words and pictures. Please welcome Jens. Uh, my piece is called Como, it's an essay, and will probably sound familiar to a few people who have been there. For 10 years, it was my home, though to most it was where you yard parked for the fair and meandered the tangled streets to the zoo. Flanked by crowd pullers, Como Park and the fairgrounds, this corner of the Como neighborhood, also bordered by Midway Parkway and Larpenter, 
was a delightfully overlooked sanctuary to raise a family, be a couple, or live alone. Just two blocks from the zoo, tiger roars blustered through the open windows and peacocks strutted the streets at twilight. Neighbors went by first names. We chatted on the sidewalk while our kids roamed the yards in an ever-morphing posse. Situated between the downtown twins, my home was a quick drive to either as it was to nearby Roseville hub of suburban shopping and dining. During the Halloween blizzard of 1991, we trudged through thigh-high snow to Harmar for a movie during our three homebound days waiting for the plows. As I came to know the area and my neighbors, the community spirit infected and beckoned me to, um, sorry, to help sustain its energy. I felt compelled to nourish it. So from block leader to community council treasurer to chair, I broadened my outreach and understanding of this place I lived. In addition to the cited natural treasures, I learned the history and goals of the Victorian era Como Villa bed and breakfast up the street, the park's Cafeshan carousel, and the historic Thomas Frankson house, whose owner established the zoo with herds of deer and buffalo. From the center of the council table, I listened to proposals for maintaining these local touchstones, evaluated initiatives to manage transient fare traffic and lead-footed meanderers, and let air the conflicts the proposed gas station, squelched by a long line of local citizens, and the not-in-my-backyard movement to close the Job Corps, halted, e halted by equally outspoken uh, opposers. It was a level of public engagement I had, never, I, had, I had not ventured into prior, nor since. It felt right at the time. The people made it feel right. Of course, it wasn't perfect. We had bits of crime, like the night a guy tried to break into a nearby house after midnight. Our phone tree quickly brought us out, and we cornered him, leaving fences through our yards. Adrenaline pulsing, pulsing, we pinned him in the grass until police arrived. Community. That's what made it perfect, how people joined in their own ways to keep our corner of the world safe and welcoming to children, fairgoers, and fanciful birds. Now, years later, when I happened by, I do my own meandering to check out the old street, see how my garden grows, if the house has changed, or if I recognize anyone familiar. In the 15, sorry, but in 15 years since I left, um, I have encountered no one familiar. Maybe my neighbors moved on too, following their life journeys elsewhere as mine did. The cohesion I felt back then has never left my spirit. In every place I have settled since, I have sought that larger family that is my community and tried to join in my own ways, in my own ways and connect. Thank you. So um, thank you all for coming on this beautiful evening, and I want to thank all our readers tonight and Peter uh, for this beautiful venue. Thanks so much. Good night. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.